0: chapter twenty five Part One of Two years before the Mast. this LibriVox recording is in the public domain Two years before the mast by Richard henry Dana jr chapter twenty five Part One Rumors of War Sunday, November first sailed this day, Sunday again for Santa Barbara, where we arrived on the fifth, coming round Santa Buenaventura. In nearing the anchorage we saw two vessels in port, a large full-rigged and a small hermaphrodite brig. The former, the crew said, must be the Pilgrim, but I had been too long on the Pilgrim to be mistaken in her, and I was right in differing from them, for upon nearer approach her long, low, sheer, sharp bows and raking-mast told quite another story. Manowar brig, said some of them, Baltimore Clipper, said others. The Ayacucho, thought I, and soon the broad folds of the beautiful banner of St. George, white filled with blood-red border and cross, were displayed from her peak. A few minutes put it beyond a doubt, and we were lying by the side of the Ayacucho, which had sailed from San Diego about nine months before, while we were lying there in the pilgrim. She had since been to Valparaiso, Kaleo, and the Sandwich Islands, and had just come up on the coast. Her boat came on board, bringing Captain Wilson, and in half an hour the news was all over the ship that there was a war between the United States and France. Exaggerated accounts reached the forecastle: Battles had been fought. A large French fleet was in the Pacific, etc., etc., and one of the boat's crew the Ayacucho said that, when they left Kaleo, A large French frigate and the American frigate Brandywine, which were lying there, were going outside to have a battle, and that the English frigate Blonde was to be umpire and see fair play. Here was important news for us alone on an unprotected coast, without an American man-of-war within some thousands of miles, and the prospect of a voyage home through the whole length of the Pacific and Atlantic oceans. A French prison seemed a much more probable place of destination than a good port of Boston. However, we were too salt to believe every yarn that comes into the forecastle, and waited to hear the truth of the matter from higher authority. By means of the supercargo's clerk I got the amount of the matter, which was, that the governments had had a difficulty about the payment of a debt, that war had been threatened and prepared for, but not actually declared. Although it was pretty generally anticipated, this was not quite so bad, yet was no small cause of anxiety. But we cared very little about the matter ourselves. Happy-go-lucky with Jack. We did not believe that a French prison would be much worse than high droguing on the coast of California. And no one who has not been a long, dull voyage, shut up in one ship can conceive of the effect of monotony upon one's thoughts and wishes. The prospect of a change is a green spot in the desert, and the probability of great events and exciting scenes creates a feeling of delight, and sets life in motion, so as to give a pleasure which any one not in the same state would be unable to explain. In fact, a more jovial night we had not passed in the forecastle for months all seemed in unaccountably high spirits. An undefined anticipation of radical changes, of new scenes and great doings, seemed to have possessed everyone, and the common drudgery of the vessel appeared contemptible. Here was a new vein opened, a grand theme of conversation, and a topic for all sorts of discussions. National filling was wrought up, "'jokes were cracked upon the only Frenchman in the ship and comparisons made between old horse and soup, maigre, etc., etc. "'We remained in uncertainty as to this war for more than two months, "'when an arrival from the Sandwich Islands brought us the news "'of an amicable arrangement of the difficulties. "'The other vessel which we found in port was the hermaphrodite brig Avon "'from the Sandwich Islands.' She was fitted up in handsome style, fired a gun, and ran her ensign up and down at sunrise and sunset, had a band of four or five pieces of music on board, and appeared rather like a pleasure-yacht than a trader. Yet, in connection with the L'Oreal, Clementine, Boulevard, Convoy, and other small vessels belonging to sundry Americans at Wahoo, she carried on a considerable trade, legal and illegal in otter skins, silks, teas, etc., as well as hides and tallow. The second day after our arrival a full-rigged brig came round the point from the northward, sailed leisurely through the bay, and stood off again for the south-east in the direction of the large island of Catalina. The next day the Avon got under way, and stood in the same direction, bound for San Pedro. This might do for marines and Californians. But we knew the ropes too well the brig was never seen again on the coast and the avon went into san pedro in about a week with a replenished cargo of canton and american goods this was one of the means of escaping the heavy duties that mexicans lay upon all imports a vessel comes on the coast enters a moderate cargo at monterey which is the only customs house and commences trading In a month or more, having sold a large part of her cargo, she stretches over to Catalina, or other of the large uninhabited islands which lie off the coast, in a trip from port to port, and supplies herself with choice goods from a vessel from Wahoo, which has been lying off on the islands waiting for her. Two days after the selling of the Avon, the L'Oriot came in from the leeward, and, without a doubt, had also had a snatch at the brig's cargo. Tuesday, November 10th, going ashore as usual in the gig just before sundown to bring off the captain, we found upon taking in the captain and putting off again that our ship, which lay the farthest out, had run up her ensign. This meant sail-ho, of course, but as we were within the point we could see nothing. Give way, boys, give way! Lay out on your oars and long-stroke!" said the captain and stretching to the whole length of our arms heading back again so that our backs touched the thwarts we sent her through the water like a rocket a few minutes of such pulling opened the islands one after another in range of the point and gave us a view of the canal where was a ship under top-gallant sails standing in with a light breeze for the anchorage putting the boat's head in the direction of the ship the captain told us to lay out again and we needed no spurring, for the prospect of boarding a new ship, perhaps from home, hearing the news, and having something to tell of when we got back, was excitement enough for us, and we gave way with a will. Captain Nye of the Laureate, who had been an old whale-man, was in the stern sheets, and fell mightily into the spirit of it. "'Bend your backs! Break your oars!' he said. "'Lay me on, Captain Bunker! There she flukes!' and other exclamations current among whalemen in the meantime it fell flat calm and being within a couple of miles of the ship we expected to board her in a few minutes when a breeze sprung up dead ahead for the ship and she braced up and stood off toward the islands sharp on the larboard tack making good way through the water this of course brought us up and we had only to ease larboard oars pull round starboard and go aboard the alert, with something very like a flea in the ear. There was a light land breeze all night, and the ship did not come to anchor until the next morning. As soon as her anchor was down we went aboard, and found her to be the whale ship Wilmington and Liverpool Packet, of New Bedford, last from the offshore ground, with nineteen hundred barrels of oil, a spouter we knew her to be as soon as we saw her by her cranes and boats, and by her stump topgallant mast, and a certain slovenly look to the sails, rigging, spars, and hull. And when we got on board, we found everything to correspond spouter-fashion. She had a false deck, which was rough and oily, and cut up in every direction by the chimes of oil casks. Her rigging was slack and turning white, paint worn off the spars and blocks, clumsy seizings, straps without covers, and homeward-bound splices in every direction. Her crew, too, were not in much better condition. Her captain was a slab-sided Quaker, in a suit of brown, with a broad-brimmed hat, bending his long legs as he moved about decks with his head down like a sheep, and the men looked more like fishermen and farmers than they did like sailors. Though it was by no means cold weather, we having on only our red shirts and duck trousers. They all had on woolen trousers, not blue in ship-shape, but of all colors, brown, drab, gray, eye, and green, with suspenders over their shoulders and pockets to put their hands in. This added to the jersey frocks, striped comforters about the neck, thick cowhide boots woolen caps, and a strong oily smell, and a decidedly green look. will complete the description. Eight or ten were on the fore-topsail yard, and as many more in the main, furling the topsail, while eight or ten were hanging about the forecastle doing nothing. This was a strange sight for a vessel coming to anchor, so we went up to them to see what was the matter. One of them, a stout, hardy-looking fellow, held out his leg and said that he had the scurvy. Another had cut his hand, and others had got nearly well, but said there were plenty aloft to furl the sails, so they were in the forecastle. There was only one splicer on board, a fine-looking old tar, who was in the bunt of the fore-topsail. He was probably the only thorough marlin-spiked seaman in the ship before the mast. The mates, of course, and the boat-steerers, and also two or three of the greater part of the crew were raw hands, just from the bush, and had not yet got the hay-seed out of their hair. The mizzen-topsail hung in the bunt-lines until everything was furled forward. Thus a crew of thirty men were half an hour in doing what would have been done in the alert with eighteen hands to go aloft in fifteen or twenty minutes. Note i have been told that this description of a whelman has given offence to the well-trading people of nantucket new bedford and the vineyard it is not exaggerated and the appearance of such a ship and crew might well impress a young man trained in the ways of a ship in the style of the alert a long observation has satisfied me that there are no better seamen so far as handling a ship is concerned and none so venturous and skilful navigators as the masters and officers of our whalemen, but never, either on this voyage, or on a subsequent visit to the Pacific and its islands, was my fortune to fall in with a whale-ship whose appearance, and the appearance of whose crew, gave signs of strictness and discipline and seamanlike like neatness. Probably these things are impossibilities, from the nature of the business, and I may have made too much of them. End Note We found that they had been at sea six or eight months, and had no news to tell us, so we left them and promised to get liberty to come on board in the evening for some curiosities. Accordingly, as soon as we were knocked off in the evening and were through supper, we obtained leave, took a boat, and went aboard and spent an hour or two. They gave us pieces of whalebone and the teeth and other parts of curious sea animals, and we exchanged books with them. A practice very common among ships in foreign ports, by which you get rid of the books you have read and re-read, and a supply of new ones in their stead, and Jack is not very nice as to their comparative value. Note. This visiting between the crews of ships at sea is called, among whalemen, gamming. End note. Thursday, November 12th. This day was quite cool in the early part, and there were black clouds about. But as it was often so in the morning, nothing was apprehended, and all the captains went ashore together to spend the day. Towards noon the clouds hung heavily over the mountains, coming halfway down the hills that encircled the town of Santa Barbara, and a heavy swell rolled in from the southeast. The mate immediately ordered the Gig's crew away, and at the same time we saw boats pulling ashore from the other vessels. Here was a grand chance for a rowing match, and everyone did his best we passed the boats of the Ayacucho and the Lorient, but could not hold our own with the long six-oared boat of the whale-ship they reached the breakers before us but here we had the advantage of them for not being used to the surf they were obliged to wait to see us beach our boat just as in the same place nearly a year before we and the pilgrim were glad to be taught by a boat crew of kanakas we had hardly got the boats beached and their heads pointed out to sea, before our old friend Bill Jackson, the handsome English sailor who steered the Lori Ott's boat, called out that his brig was adrift, and sure enough she was dragging her anchors and drifting down into the bight of the bay. Without waiting for the captain, for there was no one on board the brig but the mate and steward, he sprang into the boat, called the kanakas together, and tried to put off but the kanakas though capital water dogs were frightened by their vessels being adrift and by the emergency of the case and seemed to lose their faculties twice their boat filled and came broadside upon the beach jackson swore at them for a parcel of savages and promised to flock every one of them this made the matter no better when we came forward he told the kanakas to take their seats in the boat and going two on each side walked out with her till it was up to our shoulders, and gave them a shove, when, giving way with their oars, they got her safely into the long regular swell. In the meantime boats had put off to the Lorient from our ship and the whaler, coming all on board the brig together. They let go the other anchor, paid out chain, braced the yards to the wind, and brought the vessel up. In a few minutes the captains came hurrying down on the run, and there was no time to be lost for the gale promised to be a severe one, and the surf was breaking upon the beach, three deep, higher and higher every instant. The Ayacucho's boat, pulled by four kanakas, put off first, and as they had no rudder or steering oar, would probably never have got off, had we not waded out with them as far as the surf would permit. The next that made the attempt was the whale-boat, for we, being the most experienced beachcombers, needed no help and stayed till the last. Wellmen make the best boat's crew in the world for a long pull, but this landing was new to them, and notwithstanding the examples they had had, they slewed round and were hove up, boats, oars, and men, all together, high and dry upon the sand. The second time they filled, and had to turn their boat over and set her off again. We could be of no help to them for they were so many as to be in one another's way, without the addition of our numbers. The third time they got off, though not without shipping a sea which drenched them all, and half filled their boat, keeping them bailing until they reached their ship. English, Ben, and I, who were the largest standing on each side of the bows to keep her head out to sea, two more shipping and manning the two after oars, and the captain taking the steering oar, Two or three Mexicans who stood upon the beach looking at us wrapped their cloaks about them, shook their heads, and muttered, Caramba! They had no taste for doing such things. In fact, the hydrophobia is a nautical malady and shows itself in their persons as well as their actions. Watching for a smooth chance, we determined to show the other boats the way it should be done, and, as soon as ours floated, ran out with her, keeping her head out, with all our strength and the help of the captain's oar, and the two after oarsmen giving way regularly and strongly, until our feet were off the ground. We tumbled into the bows, keeping perfectly still from fear of hindering the others. For some time it was doubtful how it would go. The boat stood nearly up and down in the water, and the sea, rolling from under her, let her fall upon the water with a force which seemed almost to save her bottom but quietly sliding two oars forward along the thwarts without impeding the rowers we shipped two bow oars and thus by the help of four oars in the captain's strong arm we got safely off though we shipped several seas which left us half full of water we pulled alongside of the laureate put her skipper on board and found her making preparations for slipping and then pulled aboard our own ship here mr brown always on hand had got everything ready, so that we had only to hook on the gig and hoist it up, when the order was given to loose the sails. While we were on the yards, we saw the Laureat under way, and before our yards were mast-headed, the Ayacucho had spread her wings, and, with yards braced sharp up, was standing athwart our haws. There is no prettier sight in the world than a full-rigged clipper-built brig sailing sharp on the wind. In a minute more our slip-rope was gone, and the head-yards filled away, and we were off. Next came the whaler, and in half an hour from the time when four vessels were lying quietly at anchor, without a rag-out or a sign of motion, the bay was deserted, and four white clouds were moving over the water to seaward. Being sure of clearing the point, we stood off with our yards a little braced in, while the ayacucho went off with a top bowline which brought her to windward of us. During all this day, and the greater part of the night, we had the usual southeaster entertainment, a gale of wind with occasional rain, and finally topped off with a drenching rain of three or four hours. At daybreak the clouds thinned off and rolled away, and the sun came up clear. The wind, instead of coming out from the northward as usual, blew steadily and freshly from the anchoring ground. This was bad for us, for being flying light, with little more than ballast trim, we were in no condition for showing off on a top bowline, and had depended upon a fair wind, with which, by the help of our light sails and studding-sails, we meant to have been the first at the anchoring ground. But the Ayacucho was a good league to the windward of us, and was standing in in fine style. But the Ayacucho was a good league to the windward of us. The whaler, however, was as far to the leeward of us, and the laureate was nearly out of sight among the islands up the canal. By hauling every brace and bowline, and clapping watch-tackles upon all the sheets and halyards, we managed to hold our own, and dropped the leeward vessels a little in every tack. When we reached the anchoring ground the Ayacucho had got her anchor, furled her sails, squared her yards, and was lying as quietly as if nothing had happened. We had our usual good luck in getting our anchor without letting go another, and were all snug, with our boats at the boom-ends in half an hour. In about two hours more the whaler came in and made a clumsy piece of work in getting her anchor, being obliged to let go her best bower, and finally to get out a kedge and a hawser. They were heave-hoeing, stopping and unstopping, pawing, catting and fishing for three hours, and the sails hung from the yards all the afternoon, and were not furled until sundown. The laureate came in just after dark and let go her anchor, making no attempt to pick up the other until the next day. This affair led to a dispute as to the sailing of our ship and the Ayacucho. Bets were made between the captains, and the crews took it up in their own way. But as she was bound to leeward and we to windward, and merchant-captains cannot deviate, a trial never took place. And perhaps it was well for us that it did not, for the Ayacucho had been eight years in the Pacific, in every part of it valparaiso Sandwich Islands, Canton, California, and all—and was called the fastest merchantman that traded in the Pacific, unless it was the brig John Gilpin, and perhaps the ship Anne McKim of Baltimore. End of chapter 25, part 1.